Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, best-selling novelist Brad Thor on spy thriller fiction versus fact. Because I set my thrillers against big geopolitical set pieces, like, for instance, in Rising Tiger, it's why we should formalize our relationship with India and why China's a threat. I'd rather inform people through a fun, easy-to-read, fast thriller and let somebody else handle, you know, this day-to-day stuff. People ask me, what do you think the biggest threat to national security is? I said it's social media. I'm not afraid to put things in that people haven't heard of. I like the fact that people tell me they love to read my thrillers with their laptops open because they Google stuff the whole time they're reading. I call what I do faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins, and that's part of the fun. Brad, welcome to Chatter. It's good to be here, David. Thank you for having me. Well, of course. So let's start off early on. You decided to write after doing a few other things, but you clearly built those experiences into your writing, whether it was some of the realistic scenes of, of skiing as, as a skier yourself, whether it's some very apt descriptions of locations from some of your uh, work in travel. So walk us mm-hmm. through just a short version of, of how you got to the place where you were churning out novels every year. <laughs> So it's an interesting story. Uh, My dad is a no longer active Marine and my mom was a flight attendant. My dad had gone to college on the GI Bill and in our family, the arts were something to make you better rounded. That was not a career path. Uh, My dad got out of college and went into real estate uh, development, uh, ended up building office buildings and hotels. And I went to school to University of Southern California to study business administration and I hated it. I hated it. I was, oh, it was so bad. And I switched into creative writing and film and television production mm-hmm. and loved that and saved up money while I was working in college and uh, did something no American had ever done before, David, which is I went to Paris to write a novel. What a novel idea. Yeah. Never, nobody had ever moved to Paris. To, so I'm a trailblazer uh, to write a novel. Anyway, I got a couple chapters into my first novel and I thought, wow, this is the most solitary career in the world. And sure. I don't want to do this. And I shipped my laptop back home and I ended up traveling with the money that I had uh, saved in college. And what it was is I think that which we're most destined to do in life, we're mm-hmm. often most afraid of. So that was that little voice in the back of my mind saying, yeah, maybe you don't even want to try writing because what if you don't finish the book? What if it's no good? What if you don't get it published? Why risk the embarrassment? Just Mm -hmm. ship the laptop back home and travel. So I gave into that bad self-talk and I did travel and I loved travel and I came back and I thought, wow, the only show that I was seeing on TV really about how to travel on the cheap was Rick Steves Europe. And it was geared towards a much older audience. Definitely. And definitely. I, and I thought travel made me a better American. Seeing my country from abroad mm-hmm. and seeing how blessed I was to live in America, I just, I wanted to encourage other young people to travel. So I, long story short, I ended up creating a show, pitched it to public television called Traveling Light, L-I-T-E, and uh, and they picked it up. And so I did that for a couple of seasons, and it was after season two, I got married, I was on my honeymoon, and my wife asked me, we we're in a piazza in Italy having some wine, and she said, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? Ooh. And uh, I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, okay, when we get home, two hours protected time every day, you have to make that come true. Mm. And 
And wow. I did, we met, uh, we shared an overnight train compartment with a lovely brother and sister from Georgia. Uh, they recognized me because they were fans of the TV show. And uh, I shared with this young lady, she said, what are you going to do when you get home? Are you going to make more TV shows? I said, I'm going to write a book. And when we arrived in Amsterdam, we went to exchange business cards. And she said, by the way, I work for Simon & Schuster. And if you do write that book, you know, I'd like to help you with it. So uh, that's kind of the very abbreviated story of how I got into writing the novels. But um, yeah, and it's funny, the very first, my wife was a doctor for the U.S. ski team and Bill Clinton had come to Park City, Utah, where we were living uh, two times with Chelsea for her birthday. <laughs> And I knew some Secret Service guys, and I'm like, do you shut the whole mountain down? And they're like, no, 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 we ski with them and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was fascinated by this idea of protecting the president while he was skiing, uh, protecting his family while they were skiing. So that and a little, I read a little article while Trish and I were uh, on our honeymoon about a Swiss intelligence officer who had embezzled all the true story embezzled all this money from the Swiss army and was training his own shadow militia high in the Alps with high-tech weapons from his own private arsenal. And I knew that was the book that I was going to write. So I combined it with the, the Clinton family being in park city and how do you protect a president while he's skiing and all that kind of stuff. And that all came together to be my first thriller, the lions of Lucerne. And I got to say, I'm always hesitant to talk about books that people haven't read because of spoilers. But that book is what now? 20, 20 years old? Yeah. it's it, I mean, This year, 2022, celebrates my 20th anniversary of my first publication. So that was January of, uh, wow, that was just after 9-11. So I feel, like, after I feel like we can show a little leg there, Brad. So in, in The Lions of Lucerne, the issue is pretty quickly as the book starts, um, the president basically gets taken, right? He, mm -hmm. It's not that the Secret Service agents protect him. It's that because of a exceptionally well-planned operation, um, the pre they find a way to actually get the president, Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. Swiss yeah. Per precision. Swiss mercenaries <laughs> get the president. They outfox the U.S. Secret Service. Yeah. Now, at that point, and, and you, you may have known this at the time, but you've certainly come to know this over 20 years as you've gotten to know people, including our mutual friend, Fred Burton, and others who have worked extensively in law enforcement and protection, that the Secret Service trains for, I, I can't even call them hundreds of contingencies, because there are many contingencies which branch into variations thereof. So it may be thousands or tens of thousands, um, except for Bill Clinton. And I think Gerald Ford skied also. Um, there aren't been that many presidents who have been in a situation like the one you described in that first uh, breakthrough novel. Yet, if I'm the Secret Service and I read that novel, I think, you know what? Here's one more thing we need to do. We need to plan right. just in case the president is in that situation or there's something parallel to that. Maybe not skiing, but maybe it's it's water skiing. Maybe it's a high-speed race he decides to participate in like Tony Stark in Iron Man 2. Um, <laughs> Well, Has, we did have we did have with H.W. Uh, Bush. He had yes. a cigarette boat that he yep. used to love to off take the coast of Maine. out on it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And Secret it, Service learned to drive some fast boats and <laughs> alongside. Right. And who was it that Nixon disappeared with? He gave was it a Lincoln? He oh, gave yeah, to that was Brezhnev at Camp David. Or it can't yeah, David. it was and uh, Brezhnev, off. and yeah, decided to give him you know give him the keys. He's like, yeah, take the wheel of the car and. 
And suddenly <laughs> Brezhnev is driving around like a madman. Yeah. And are they actually going to go off one of the, the edges of the mountain or not? You can you can train all you want for situations, but you also have to train to adapt in the moment. Absolutely. And, and it seems to me that in, in your books you portray that, but that's got to come from somewhere. Do you think do you think some of that actually came from your dad talking about some of his marine training? So there's a little bit of that. There's uh, so if we if we look at the Secret Service, right? There's there's the people that are doing the close protection work. Then there's the CAT teams, and you've got the responsibility of the the agents to to evacuate their protectee. You know, their job is not to put rounds on the on the threat, and th- their job is not to put the threat down. It's to protect you know the president or the member of the family whoever it is and then spirit uh, spirit them out of there and then the the cat team can take care of uh, of the threat uh, my dad was very interesting in this kind of stuff because we used to talk about this a little bit and he's he's a very intuitive very smart guy and he said you know what uh, the protection you're able to get from the Secret Service, and this was just he, in just his impression, is only going to be as good as the relationships that they have with the protectee. Does the protectee listen to you as as the detail agent? Do they trust you? Do they realize the importance? Because you do get people that have security and can be absolutely terrible to their detail agents. I mean, these are people that are willing to put their lives on the line to protect you. You, right. you should get used to trusting them. Uh, so it's that, uh, I think there's probably a little bit of hearts and minds that the Secret Service have to do with their protectees and, and, and build that level of trust with them and everything and build that rapport so that if you have to tell somebody it's time to go, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to say it twice, it's time to go. It brings It brings a few things to mind. One is that there are the famous stories of presidents who who argued with their Secret Service agents or ditched them or in some cases insulted them or the families did. Or the, yeah, I was going to say there's some spouses Often that are spouses. famous. <laughs> right. Um, but there are the parallel stories. There are the opposite stories, I should say, of people like George H.W. Bush, whom you mentioned, who mm-hmm. on a cold day would personally, or Barbara Bush, would personally go outside in the cold, windy day you know, and take a cup of coffee or yeah. a hot piece of toast out and say, here, yeah. you need this. Um, just showing that you're kind of part of the family too. Or, or stay at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for the holidays so that yeah. you didn't have to separate agents from their families, right? Right. And that shows a level of, that goes beyond trust, really. That that goes to seeing an extended family relationship yes. for these people who have to be intimate with you, uh, to be around you 24-7. Um, the other side of that is something that uh, former special agent John Wackrow told us for the episode that we just posted on Chatter, which was that he felt when he and he worked in the Obama White House um, on the pr- protection detail. And he said, you knew that you had that level of trust when the family would argue in front of you about something intimate and personal. Oh, wow. And they didn't ask you to leave. They didn't look at you. They didn't even because then it was safe. It was a safe space. And somehow that element of trust had been bought into on both sides. And I thought that's actually interesting that learning learning that the people who are there to protect you aren't going to go and sell it to the tabloids, because that's traditionally not what Secret Service agents have done. Even if they disagreed politically with the president, their duty came first. Yeah, And you know what? I'll tell you, we live in... 
my friend Jonah Goldberg wrote a book called Suicide of the West, mm -hmm. and it's a great book. And I blurbed the book, and he talked about we're on a, the peak of a mountain as far as civilization goes, Western civilization, particularly here in our republic, that if we lean too far forward or too far back or too far left or too far right, we're going to fall off the mountaintop. And that if you could choose to be born at any time mm -hmm. in any country in the history of the world, right now, right here is where you would want to be with high gas prices, inflation, COVID, all of it. This is exactly where we want to be. Um, there is an element to what you're saying about the agents wouldn't run to the tabloids that is eroding now. And it's disappointing. There is a, uh, I won't name names, but there's a former Secret Service agent uh, who was on a detail and he's become very politically active to the point that he's expressed regret that he would have been willing to uh, put himself uh, in front of his protectee to protect this certain person that the tribalization of the politics has gotten that bad that he would go back and, and debase himself, which I thought was terrible. He should be proud of the service that he did. You did not get put on that detail because of your political views. You got put on it because of your talent. And to be dealing with a high-level protectee, it says a lot about who you were as a professional. So there's this... Uh, that's bothered me recently. And now the fact that we're looking at uh, with the January 6th committee, are agents going to be uh, subpoenaed and are they going to have to come in and testify in front of the committee? Mm -hmm. And I can make excellent cases for why that's important and why there's also a certain amount of danger there. Uh, what does it do to the relationship between the agents and their protectees in the in the future? Are, are people going to do like the Obamas did, feel that comfortable in front of uh, Secret Service agents uh, that they can be open and not feel like they have to ask everybody to step out of the room before they yeah, can that, have a... That's a real tough one because on, on the one hand, logically, I'm, I'm with you. That is, it only stands to reason that if we have, you know, not only in the Clinton administration, which you and I are old enough to remember, mm -hmm. but in, in a more recent administration, we have, again, Secret Service agents that are uh, forced to, although they have been willing to to this point, cooperate with an investigation. It, it makes sense that that will lead to some issues going forward. On the other hand, after the Clinton administration, after there was an issue with Secret Service um, testimony, mm -hmm. we didn't see the Secret Service duty crumble. They continued to do the job, and we did have yeah. presidents who trusted them. So I wonder, it's good to be cautious, no doubt, but I wonder if maybe they're, they're, we're overthinking it, that Secret Service agents and their protectees, it may be a slight bit harder, but they can actually handle that challenge. Yeah, no, I, it is a thoroughly professional organization from top to bottom. So my my concern is not with the Secret Service itself. Uh, I don't want Americans to think that the Secret Service is going to be some sort of a reporting system for inside the White House. I don't want people to get used to hearing from Secret Service uh, agents and having yeah. them subpoenaed and things like this. I Listen, they have one of the hardest jobs in the world. Right. And I, we are a, we are a republic. We're a nation of laws, and I want people to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. I just don't want the American public to think they can default to the Secret Service to spill the beans on the inside. You know, if they can't get mm -hmm. the appropriate players to talk, I don't want the default to be well. We'll force the Secret Service in here to tell us what they heard in here. You know, I I I, I want the players. I want everybody in the administration to be 
ponying up and showing up for a hearing to say, this is what I said. This is what was said back to me. I don't want the Secret Service agent who had to stand the post say, this is what he said. And then this is how she responded, that kind of a thing. I just, they have an important job to do. They need to do it the way they train to do it. I just don't want to add a complication there. And I think if you have people who have uh, committed themselves to public service in the in the form of joining an administration, I'm talking about non-secret service personnel. I want to exhaust all those Muldoons, all those people. I want to squeeze every piece of information we can out of them before we then try to force the secret service out into the open to talk about things that, you know what, that's not what they're there for. They're not there to be witness to history. They're there to protect people. You know, they're not scribes and all that kind of stuff. It's, so I, it it just bugs me when our institutions get eroded. And that's a lot of what we've seen lately, a loss of trust in institutions and things like that. So I'm kind of for how do we rebuild our institutions? How do we rebuild trust in them? And I just don't want to see any further erosion, if that makes if that makes sense. It, it but, certainly does. You, you know that uh, we, we share strong feelings on that. Mm-hmm. And you've you've actually put that in writing you, across most of your books. You focus very heavily on. U.S. foreign policy, national security, how big pictures in geopolitics connect to the very personal of people being asked to execute difficult missions. But in your mo- in your new book, Rising Tiger, you actually have what sounds like a diatribe, really. You, you take <laughs> a real cut at the dysfunction of current American politics, saying the two parties unable to work together, representatives willing to reach across the aisle and attempt compromise, were labeled by the fringes in their parties as sellouts and even traitors. Uh, and then it goes on and, and really gives details of that. The book isn't about U.S. politics, but you clearly felt the strong need to, to bring in some of the fact that that mountaintop you just spoke about, where the, the America in today's world is, is better off than people through all of history could have imagined, and yet it's a dangerous time too, isn't it? It is. In So I'm writing a thriller. Uh, I wanted to set, uh, I was fascinated with what was going on in India, that the United States is the world's oldest democracy. India is the world's largest. We, uh, you know, there's a, there's, has been a very strong tide of nationalism in India. And it's just vis-a-vis its relationship with the Russians and buying Russian military equipment. There, there's a relationship there that I would like to see severely <laughs> eroded, and I'd like to see the United yep. States uh, grasp India and hold India tighter. So it was a fun place to set a spy thriller, but it is kind of a there are things that are happening in India that that we can examine our own situation from, whether mm. it's threats to India's democracy, whether it's the dangers posed by Chinese apps like TikTok, which uh, over 200 apps have been banned by new, uh, the government, New Delhi. Uh, big blow to the Chinese tech sector, but the Chinese had it coming to them when they crept over the Alps with homemade weapons two, two years ago uh, mm. and just assaulted uh, a contingent of Indian troops that were up there in the, at the line of actual control. So when I talk about that stuff, about the warring factions in the parties, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm 52, so I can't say I remember it like yesterday, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, you know, belting back shots of whiskey together and and working on coming up with solutions. But I remember these terms like isn't, you know, 50% of a loaf better than no loaf at all. And it seems, listen, we have some absolute... 
our members of Congress have never been perfect. We have never had a perfect Congress, okay? But we've got some real winners when it comes to the Darwin Awards. We've got some real idiots. I mean, absolute mouth breathing, please no sharp objects anywhere yeah. near them in this Congress. And they thrive and not just them, but the whole kind of political entertainment complex thrives off of driving outrage. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we are being driven further and further apart from each other, convinced that we can never let the other side win another election because their ways are, quote unquote, so evil that they'll spell the end of the 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 world for us, the end of our countries. We know it. And that's just not mm -hmm. just not true. So this idea that I, that somehow we are so alien to each other. It's not true. We've got more that unites us as Americans than divides us. So I yeah. saw that happening in India. It's definitely happening here. And it, it's something that I think poses a great risk to our republic. People ask me, what do you think the biggest threat to national security is? I said, it's social media. I said, uh, you know, there was a report out in the last year uh, that stated that for like the first time ever, I think it was, a majority of Americans get their news from Facebook, from the pages on Facebook. That is frightening. It's it's incredibly frightening because you are joining pages where people think just like you. You're not joining pages to have your worldview challenged. So you're letting your guard down when you're in these Facebook groups. And you are you are a prime target for disinformation, in, uh, whether it be the Iranians, the North Koreans, the Russians, the Chinese. You are really at risk in these places and you don't realize how much you are at risk. Uh, so the ability to manipulate public opinion by our adversaries is something that I'm very, very concerned about. And the more we're at each other's throats, David, the more we're tribal, the more all I care about are the people wearing my jersey, uh, the greater our adversaries can exploit the the fissures that, that exist in our society. And that's that's really hard because people who are, you know, are politically invested in any way, you have principles behind those beliefs, right? You, you are, it's no surprise, you know, you are a national security conservative. Um, as someone who had identified with many conservative causes, you found it real shocking a few years ago. And I, I remember very well the day that you were so fed up with this social media fed tribalism with the, the concept of people who were actually seeking to benefit personally more than serve the country in, in elected roles that you actually announced, Hey, if it comes to it, I'll run for president. Right. Yeah. You yeah. didn't end up following up on that because there were other people who did step up, which I think was, was your main concern. Uh, and why you, you said that. And we had people like Joe Walsh, I think, and Bill yeah, Weld who actually stepped up to show that, yes, we, we can do better on at least one side. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you felt strongly enough that you actually publicly said, yes, if, if it comes to it so that somebody brings in some of these rational ideas about working together and not being so polarized, I will do it if I have to. Uh, do you think that that demand is still there? Are we still in the same place we were a few years ago where you're feeling on that edge of needing to, to take action and in a sense prod people to be more aware of the danger here? Yes, I think it's worse but I think we've got to find another way to do it. So you've got some crazy number, like seven or eight out of 10 Republicans that think that Trump actually won the election right. and that it was stolen from Biden. That's just asinine. That is just asinine. And I, I read an interesting piece today. I think it was over at Charlie Sykes's site, The Bulwark. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you uh, multiple times uh, on Charlie's podcast. Uh, and it was about... 
do these people really believe it? Or is this now becoming a fig leaf for, I don't want the left to win because I hate the left so much that they cannot be allowed to win. And if they do win, it can't be ever seen as legitimate because Mm -hmm. they are now our enemy. So we're going to say they stole the election. Uh, I have a really good buddy of mine who does a lot of work down in Texas. And before the last election told me, Brad, I saw Trump signs everywhere. He's going to win. I said, you're in South Texas. I said, talk about a sample bias. I said, that's crazy. I said, you can't just assume. Um, So it's, we've, we've got an issue where if we can't, was it Moynihan that said you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Yeah. And I, you know, I commend Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger from my old home state of Illinois for standing up and honoring their, their oath to the constitution. Uh, I'm, I'm friendly with Bill Haggerty here in Tennessee. Our boys were in the same, or his boys and, and my son were in the same boy scout troop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love Bill Haggerty and he's a Mitt Romney, moderate Republican. Yet he came in as a new Senator from Tennessee saying, I'm not going to vote to certify the election. And I love Bill and I think he's a great guy, but you know what? That contributed to the environment, the, the, the idea that somehow Trump was robbed. And I get it. Trump made him ambassador to Japan and, you know, announced that he was going to run for the Senate seat in Illinois from uh, before he did, you know, kind of endorsed him and threw his weight behind him. And I get you know, owing political favors to somebody, but to come in and actually spew a lie, I was so disappointed. And I, again, I love Haggerty and he didn't after the January 6th, uh, insurrection, both he and Marsha Blackburn, our two senators reversed themselves. But at that point, you've already helped light the house on fire. So That's now right. you're going to tell the firemen where to park the truck and you want to <laughs> slap on the back for that. No, you yeah. helped start the fire. Now, you've got a lot of passion around this, Brad. I mean, you have for years. You, you still do. Yeah. Um, David, why? Go ahead. You know, listen, my dad and my mom raised us and they said, you don't own this country. Mm-hmm. You are merely stewards of this republic. And it's incumbent upon you to hand down a stronger, freer, more prosperous, more secure nation than was handed to you. The debt's out of control. The deficit's out of control. You know, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans lied to me forever. They said, if we can just get control of the House, then if we can just get control of the Senate, well, if we can just then get control of the White House, we're going to get the spending under control. And it was a lie. I mean, the spending under Trump went crazy when it was all the Republicans. So I've become very disillusioned. uh, But listen, what do I, I'm in my 50s now. What do I want my legacy to be? I want my legacy to be a better America that gets handed down for my children to be stewards of than than what my generation and the generation before it have done to it. So I am very passionate about it because I think we are that shining city on a hill and we should remain that way. But the city only shines if we don't tarnish it, if we continue to buffer it and polish it and things like this. So this big lie nonsense is Mm -hmm. it's hurt me. I'm sure I've lost readers who don't like that I've said that stuff, but Mm -hmm. But you've it's, chosen, the truth. it's the truth. You've chosen not to write about it. With that level of passion, I could easily see you sitting down and saying, damn it, I, I, am, I am shifting gears. And the next novel, I am directly attacking this dynamic in the United States that is twisting people whom I respect and I have agreed with before who have been willing to go along with something that any rational person would know is potentially devastating to the future of Republican democracy. Um, and yet you've chosen not to do that. 
Is that because you're having too much fun exploring the rest of the world through your characters? Or is that because you feel like that would be a step too far for yourself, your readers, your publisher, or someone else? My job when I'm writing these novels is to entertain people. Okay. So if you start taking sides, we used to have this thing where you don't discuss religion, sex, or politics. That used to be kind of polite society. So I think it's, you'd be a moron to open a delicatessen and hang a sign on the door that said, no blacks, no Jews, no gays. I mean, that would be ridiculous. You don't want to exclude people from your business. And Mm -hmm. what I like about my books is that because I set my thrillers against big geopolitical set pieces, like for instance, in Rising Tiger, it's it's why we should formalize our relationship with India and why China's a threat. I'd rather inform people through a fun, easy to read, fast thriller of what the big issues at stake are for the United States on kind of a geopolitical basis and let somebody else handle you know, this day-to-day stuff. I used Mm -hmm. to do that on social media. I used to be like Liz Cheney and like Kinzinger and everything. Mm -hmm. And it pissed a lot of my fans off. And Mm -hmm. I remember, and and that's fine. They come to me for entertainment, not for politics. It's not my job to tell them how to vote. Uh, So I've, I've focused my energy locally where I'm not Brad Thor, the author, I'm Brad Thor, the citizen, the neighbor. Um, Yeah. yeah, With your neighbors and the, so the people in your community and your school board and all that kind of stuff. So that's where, and that's the way that we were founded is so that those decisions and those important conversations could happen on a local level so that you can influence and impact things from, from the grassroots, from the ground up. That's such an interesting observation because we, we tend with, and I think social media is a part of it, maybe not all of it, we tend to think nationally. You know, it used to be all politics were local. Uh, now the the mantra is all politics are national. You can't run for a school board election without having to engage with some perception or misperception of critical race theory and what's being taught in, in certain books and the math textbooks in Florida trying to cheat social equity. It's it's cr- I got a buddy here who's nuts about CRT. And I said, is it in your school? I don't think so. It's like, so you're bitching about something happening in California and you're not even sure if it's happening in your school in Tennessee. Why don't you yeah. focus locally? It's, but it's the outrage machine. People like being angry. It's a lot easier than being happy, I guess. It takes <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I got to say, it's it's certainly more fun for an escapist novel, and you you do time your release of your books for summer reading, mm-hmm. and a lot of people, whether it's an actual beach vacation or where where people use the idea of the summer to break free and relax a bit, you know, you give them a way to explore the world, and we've we've talked before that you have been to many of the places that you have your characters explore, but there are some places you just can't go or haven't gone, whether they're, you know, within, within Russia or Svalbard in the uh, Arctic circle or yeah, some COVID other... boxed me out on Svalbard. I mean, yep. come on. I mean, it'd be fun to go there. I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to get there. But when you're working on writing and, and, and working with your fan, you can't get everywhere. And yet you make us feel like we are there. There are details there that are either completely fantastical and made up or you've done some research. How is it that you do make realistic portrayals of these places around the world so that we can feel like we are there with your characters? 
Well, thank you. Because this, so having come from a travel journalism background, if you want to call having a t- travel show on PBS uh, journalism, I don't know, that might be a, applying. A, uh, it's a stretch, but we'll take it. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. So having been in travel television, let's put it that way, having been a travel show host, let's make this 100% uh, accurate. Uh, that escapism travel, seeing another culture, another country, I always love that. So if I cannot get to someplace uh, for one of my novels, I want to talk to people who have operated there. So I want to talk right. to people in the intelligence community, special mm-hmm. operations community, even people in the diplomatic corps, people who in in this sense, maybe DSS a little bit more than somebody who's you know working for the ambassador. I want somebody who mm-hmm. was in that place and had to pay attention to the details that a shift in a detail meant something was up and they would notice a change in details because people who get put into foreign uh, situations that are trained to look for certain things Mm -hmm. uh, really pick up on some interesting pieces of information. So uh, for instance, uh, I've got a dear friend of mine. He was my uh, children. He's my children's godfather. And uh, he was based uh, very recently at the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi. And so I was able to get some really cool stuff from him. I talked to uh, our mutual friend, Fred Burton, who used to be a DSS uh, agent. And Fred was the one uh, that turned me on to a position that I did not know we had at many embassies called the Foreign Service National slash Investigator, a retired, often retired, high-ranking police officer that could help uh, embassy staff and AMSITs navigate the local police force. The From the country in which we have the embassy, not a U.S. citizen, but a Foreign Service National, right? Correct. So I, because I said to Fred, I said, I've got my my protagonist, Scott Harvat. There's going to be this diplomat, American diplomat that gets killed in Jaipur, Mm -hmm. uh, who's over there kind of secretly locked lobbying for India to join this uh, Asian version of NATO. And I said, how do I get Harvath to to pull stuff he needs from the local police investigation? He can't, they're not going to listen to him if he walks in there. And so it was him, it was Fred that told me about this position. And what I wanted to create was a, a guide, a local Indian person as a guide through Indian culture, because I was learning all this fascinating stuff. And I wanted a local character who could take my American uh, operative through kind of that culture. And in my head, I wanted to create an Indian version of Sean Connery in the untouchables, but with a little bit more of a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So I wanted Mm -hmm. that really street smart street cop, uh, but who'd been off the beat for five or 10 years who missed being on the street and had really good instincts and wasn't afraid to go out and break a couple eggs to make an omelet and crack a couple of skulls and things like that. Somebody who was going to really revel being back on the street. And yeah. I thought that could provide some fun energy for the book. And so it was thanks to Fred that he uh, told me a little bit about uh, that kind of a person Harvath could avail himself of. You also introduce us uh, to another character in Rising Tiger, who is one in a series of what I will call badass women. Um, yeah. This is Asha, the mm-hmm. uh, the agent inside India itself. And I want to talk about that a little bit because you started writing some of the, the series with Scott Harvath as the protagonist 20 years ago. And uh, you know, I know you're a fan of the old Freddie Forsyth books mm-hmm. and some of the Robert Ludlums, Trevain, some of the other great writers of action, espionage type fiction. And you did not have a lot of role models for strong women characters across most of those, not not all, right. but most. Right. And yet you have made it 
a practice, not quite a calling card, but close to it about making sure that this is not just the same thing that we would have read, you know, 40, 50 years ago, that, that there are some very strong women characters who are not merely objects in the background, but are actually moving the action forward and controlling their own destiny in many ways. How strongly do you feel about that? And do you consciously do that? Or is that just kind of part of how you want to tell a story without even thinking about it? So it's a combination of all those things. I am surrounded by very talented, very intelligent, very strong women in my own life, be it my wife, who was uh, a family practice doctor, sports medicine doc, and was a doc to the U.S. ski team, my agent, my editor. Uh, I also have a daughter, and my daughter is about to turn 20. Uh, so she's been around for almost the entirety of my writing career, and I wanted to have characters that she could look up to, that she could enjoy. Uh, and it's just, a, I'm a product of a different time. I mean, Clancy was a lot older than I am, and so was Ludlum and Freddie Forsyth and John Le Carre. These yeah. were all older guys. Uh, I had didn't know any of them personally, so I can't talk about how they saw women in their personal lives. All I know is, is that I knew lots of women, whether it was at, uh, you know, I've got a good friend at DOJ who processes FISA warrants, who's just a badass and she's smart as hell and an incredibly dedicated patriot in uh, women, whether it be in law enforcement or in the intelligence community. I've met these women. They are out there at U.S. Secret Service. I knew an unbelievable oh, yeah. woman at the U.S. Secret Service. So these women are out there. I think it's important to draw attention to their contributions, but I don't do it for any like, you know, social credit or anything like that. I just, I find these, I find strong women fascinating and incredibly attractive. To me, yeah. there's nothing more attractive than a person who commands their own destiny and says, I have a skill set and I have a mission and I'm going to see the mission through. And uh, whether that be, you know, the book I did about the all-female Delta Force team where the women were just as competitive as the men, you know, uh, or Asha, who's working for the research and analysis wing uh, in in India for, for Raw. I just think these these are fun characters to write. And the feedback I get from my readers, they love these characters. And it's funny because I'll hear from more men than women that say, like, so I have Scott Harvest's fiance, uh, works for the Norwegian Intelligence Service. And when I brought her up, like last year's book, she was very heavy in last year's book. And I had so many women say, she's awesome. But twice as many guys say, you got to give her her own book. I'd buy that mm -hmm. in a second. Yeah. So there's a thing that male readers love to read about a badass woman who can handle herself too. So it's a win-win for me. Nobody says, oh, that sucks. Put less women in my <laughs> so, so you haven't had a backlash to that, have you? <laughs> no pun intended as that's a title of mine. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Back to Rising Tiger, you, you've of course got Asha playing this, this leading role. But one of the big, almost a character in the book is this geopolitical relationship. And you don't use the word the quad, um, but that's what it's called right now, which is Japan, Australia, India, and the United States getting together, talking about cooperation on a whole bunch of fronts, but explicitly not talking about it as a military alliance against China. It's almost like in the Harry Potter books, you know, his, his name shall not be spoken. We won't say Voldemort. And in, in, in discussions about the quad, we're not talking about creating a new NATO against China. And yet in the book, that's really the backstory. That, that's what you're talking about is China's uh, fear, if you will, of this 
turning into a military alignment and the efforts of the countries involved to actually explore the possibility, knowing that there's great danger even in doing so, in some cases within their own countries. That that requires some level of paying attention, if not on a daily basis, uh, certainly uh, relatively regularly, to the ups and downs of international relations. And I remember exchanging messages with you a year or two ago about you know, remote Andaman islands and, and various aspects of geopolitical nuance that most people wouldn't bother to investigate. But while you're writing fiction, while you're trying to develop characters, while you're trying to m- get plot points moving, you're actually spending a lot of time reading some fairly nuanced sources about geopolitics and foreign policy. Where is it that you tend to go to read those tea leaves and try to get ahead of what's going to be next year's headlines? So I tell people, David, that politics is my baseball. I don't, I'm not a baseball guy, uh, but I love politics. I love domestic politics. I love international politics. Um, and it's funny, while I was writing Rising Tiger, Nikki Haley and Congressman Mike Waltz from Florida put, did an op-ed about formalizing why we should formalize our alliance with India. I actually give the two of them a little acknowledgement in the back of the book uh, because I had Asha and Scott Harvath have a little discussion as to, you know, why haven't we done this sooner? This seems mm-hmm. to make a lot of sense. There's mutual benefit here. Uh, so I, I'm just a voracious reader. I love this stuff. You know, I'm reading Navy papers on blue Arctic strategy or blue ocean strategy. What mm-hmm. are we going to do in the Arctic as the ice melts and things like that? What does that mean for the Russia-China relationship if all that ice melts and China can start you know, shaving 15 days off of Shanghai to Rotterdam if right. they go up north over Russia. Uh, what's in it for Russia if they let China do that? Uh, how many icebreakers do we have? Uh, you know, and I've been fortunate enough to, uh, Andrew Breitbart at one point used to love to say that politics is downstream of culture. So if I'm putting these things into my books, I'm doing it because I really, really love it. And if people are learning a little bit more about these issues, like the quad, yeah, I don't say the quad, but that's basically what this book is about. It's about formal, like taking the quad and making it uh, a, a, an official organization, basically an Asian version of NATO uh, and what that would do with China, looking at Taiwan and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's got to have all the action. It's got to have those crisp, short cinematic chapters. So that's really the uh, the challenge for me as a fiction author. But I, I marinate in this stuff all day long. I'm, you know, so I've got a cajillion subscriptions, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Foreign Policy, The Atlantic, The Bulwark, The Dispatch. I mean, I've got so many places and I'm just pulling all this information in all day long until I can find something that just, it's like a sixth sense. I'm like, okay, this matters. This is going to matter. Um, and then the, the, the balancing act for me is how do I write the books so that they're evergreen so that you can pick up one of my novels that I wrote 10 years ago and still have a great read. You know, uh, one of the reasons I never wrote about bin Laden is because I knew eventually we were going to capture him or kill him. And that would just make the book worthless. So I don't Mm -hmm. do that stuff, but I do do things that I, I believe are about to happen on our collective doorstep tomorrow. And, uh, I, I, Boy, what did I do in Spymaster? I based Spymaster a couple of years ago on uh, 
on a big exercise that the Rand Corporation did mm-hmm. where, oh, you've got it right there. That's cool. Still my favorite cover in the oh. Scott Harbath series because yeah, of the, the, the I love depth that of cover. it, because of the, 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 the almost hidden figure on it. It actually evokes a lot of feeling. Well, thank you. I, yeah, that was a really great cover that they did on that one. I love that one. Um, the 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 plot behind Spymaster was this idea uh, that was generated in the Rand Corporation where they did all this war gaming about Russia moving on one of the Baltic NATO states. Mm-hmm. And that essentially by dropping paratroopers in, Rand believed this. And they kept switching up red team and blue team. So it wasn't always you're going to be the Russian military, you're going to be the American military. They kept switching the participants up so they could play it from both sides. And they could never figure out a way that Russia wasn't able to take one of the Baltic nations. Yeah. And the idea that Russia Russia would also need to take Gotland, uh, the Swedish island, to put missile systems on there to basically prevent uh, NATO states from resupplying and reinforcing the Baltic NATO members through the right. Baltic Sea. And right. that to me was fascinating. And I was talking to – so <laughs> back during the Rodney King riots when I was going to USC and was living in LA, I lived above a health food store. Uh, and it didn't matter that it was a health food store. It just mattered that it was a store and the, the, the riots were, the mobs were hitting every store, trying to get mm-hmm. cash out of cash registers. So everybody in our building was taking shifts uh, to keep an eye on the roof to make sure these guys didn't come and like set our building on fire. And mm-hmm. one of the people on the roof that we became good friends with, a neighbor that I met that night, ended up being Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor under Donald Trump in the last administration. And so Robert's been a friend of mine for many, many years. He's, he loves the geopolitical stuff, just like I do. He's very smart, uh, really very well read. And he had told me something when I was writing Spymaster that I did not know. So when I was talking about, okay, if we can't get ships into the Baltic, if Finland, which has now changed, if Finland Mm -hmm. wasn't going to let us do any basing there for our jets, uh, how are we going to get equipment and supplies through the Suwaki Gap up into those? And he said, listen, Brad, I got to tell you, one of the big problems we have is that the railroad gauge changes when you leave Poland. So you actually have to move the equipment onto different trains. And you know that the GRU has got all those spots marked for sabotage and Spetsnaz guys are going to be hitting those. And it's going to be so Anyway, I just geek out over all these little things, and I like to talk to people who are also passionate. I mean, if you've got a buddy, you've got friends who love football, you're going to talk football with them or baseball. Mm-hmm. My thing is just – it's just geopolitics. And I got to say, the the novels of the past couple of years – so you've got, what, Spymaster, then Backlash, uh, Near Dark, yep. Black Ice, if I got them mm-hmm. in order. But Correct. Near Dark and Black Ice – kind of read like what's going on now. There's, right there's now, yeah. some Sweden, Finland, Arctic dynamics involving Russia going on that are eerily mm-hmm. like some of the background dynamics to what's happening now. But of course, you're not writing a book now. You're writing a book over the course of a year, year and a half in advance uh, yeah. and then putting it to bed many weeks before publication. Months. So in this case, you have Rising Tiger coming out around July 4th. Um, but you're not writing it in May and June. Um, you're, you're making some some very last minute changes, maybe near the, the beginning of that period. But even then, Rising Tiger is coming out now and you've got references to Russia invading Ukraine. You were able to slip in to make it seem even more current and to somehow have that affect what some of the characters are thinking and doing at critical points in the novel. 
How rough is it to do that, to get your last version, the last time you can make a substantive change? The publisher is saying, Brad, you, you got one day left. Right. And you're trying to get in something that will make it seem current months later when it could change next week. How do you think through that when it comes to making those last minute changes for truly real world geopolitical reasons? You've got to be careful how far out on the limb you want to walk. You know, so I, I I wasn't worried that peace was going to break out anytime soon in Ukraine. Uh, so I was able to do a certain amount of it. You know, it's it's really I have a really good network of contacts, whether they be currently in those different communities or recently retired or not so recently retired. There's a lot of institutional knowledge that that continues. And if you can tap into somebody who is familiar with those things, uh, I ended up cracking up uh, a buddy in the Intel community because I used the old U.S. embassy as a brothel in Bucharest in this book. And it was so funny because I, I set it up and I let him see the manuscript ahead of time. He goes, wait a second. I know this building. I've been in, he goes, is this the, with all, and it's because all the catacombs underneath Bucharest and everything, there's a lot of buildings that have problems and this one is all slanted and you can't close doors all the way and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, he said, is that the old U.S. Embassy in Bucharest? I said, yeah, it is. And he goes, how did you get this information? I said, just a lot of research. And he, and he said, are you playing on the fact that there may have been, uh, you know, he's making fun of a, a whorehouse and politicians and all this kind of stuff. Got a really big kick out of it. And then he told me, he said, I got to tell you, there's a bar down the street where I used to meet with some of my Romanian contacts and you've got to put it in there. And so I did. And it's really funny because my, my thrillers are published in Romania as well. So, and I know there's people in the Romanian government that read them and things like this and in their military and intelligence community. So I think the Romanians are going to get a big kick at this bar that they sit in drinking is in the book. It makes it fun because in... Uh, especially your recent books, but probably I think in all of them, you do drop Easter eggs. And sometimes they're subtle, like it'll be in a description of a location like that, or in a particular food or a name. But sometimes it's it's an actual name drop. Like you dropped uh, one of Fred Burton's books in as a character yes, reading one of the books. I did, yeah. In Rising Tiger, you um, you drop in The Blaze as somebody's reading to keep keep informed as to various affairs. Um, you must you must have a lot of fun with that, uh, a way of, okay, I'm going to pick a few particular places in each book and I'm going to drop something so that not only does, does an individual get a kick out of it, but it actually gives it an air of realism because real people talk about real things like books and websites and things like that. You've, so you've got to be careful. You don't want to lard it up with too much of that stuff because then it's just, and it's never a product placement. I have never, I, I've, it's funny. There's a particular bourbon that I love and it's like one of the <laughs> hardest bourbons in the world to find. And I wanted to show like one of my bad guys had really good taste. He's yeah. super wealthy. And the minute he sees this bourbon, like his mouth starts watering. He's I like, must yeah, say, there are certain drinks that almost play the role of major characters across the books. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. So just small world story. So I, I'm a huge fan of Pappy Van Winkle bourbon. 
And uh, so I'd put it in the books and I just realized my guys, my government operatives are not going to be able to afford Pappy nope. Van Winkle, you know, mm-hmm. a bottle that, I don't know, 2,500 bucks a bottle, you know, it just at least not yeah. hard at and it just, he'd love it, but he didn't have the money for this. And it's funny because I learned that Preston Van Winkle is actually a reader of my novels. And we got introduced and I said, oh my gosh, I'm a huge fan. I love your bourbon. And he said, well, I love your books. And I said, oh, that's really cool. You know, I've enjoyed including Pappy in there. He goes, can I ask one favor? And I'm like, oh my God, sure. What's the favor? He goes, do you think maybe you could have a good guy drinking my bourbon at some point? Not a bad guy. I was going to say, where I I thought you were going with that was, and I'm not going to try to minimize the value of your books. That would be rude, right? But I thought you were going to say, I'll trade you a couple of bottles for a couple of my books. And I, that's a damn good trade. It, it would be. He did not. I got a, <laughs> I got a lovely bottle from him as a thank you a yeah. while ago for talking about, he's like, he said, you've given me so many hours of pleasure. I mm. want to give you a bottle of Pappy. And he signed it and wrote me a little note and a gold oh. paint pen on the side of it. And he was very, very kind. And he said, I don't want anything for this. I am yeah. not asking for anything. You know, he made the joke about the good guys. Mm-hmm. And I, so, you know what I did? I had Harvath. I talked to a couple of friends of mine about their team funds. And he's like, oh yeah, we skimmed from the team fund all the time. That's how we all got Rolexes and all this kind of stuff. And I said, okay, so in very in the beginning, uh, Harvath completes a mission and uh, they've actually all chipped in to get a bottle of Pappy. So for the first time in one of my books, the good guys are drinking Pappy. Your box has been checked. Uh, Related to that, something you do in, I think, all of the books is you bring in other elements of pop culture, not necessarily things like names of books and names of websites, but you're bringing in music. Right. Most recently mm-hmm. in Rising Tiger, it's it's a whole bunch of discussion of funk versus R&B, which is fun yeah. between um, the banter between the characters. Sometimes it's movies like there's a Casablanca reference yep. in in Rising Tiger. Um, when you do that, how much do you rely on your readers knowing it? I think Casablanca is pretty safe. Uh, you're, you're talking about something that has some cultural resonance to it. Mm-hmm. But do you have to think carefully about I have to know whether my audience is me. I can't assume they know everything I do. And if I make reference to, you know, Parliament and George Clinton, are they going to roll their eyes or are they going to nod along and say, oh, yeah? You know what? It is part of exposing people to something they might not have found had they not read it in one of my books. So last year's book, Black Ice, uh, Harvath was burning through all his sick days, all his vacation days, hanging out with his girlfriend in Oslo. Mm -hmm. And I had a piece in the book where I talked about she was a real fan of old black and white Hollywood movies. And so was he. And so I said they had already watched this, 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 and this. And I wanted some stuff that people hadn't heard of, like maybe The Night of the Hunter or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't worry that people may not have heard of George Clinton, who I got to meet, by the way. And he goes, you're what? the guy that puts all my songs in your books. How did that yeah. happen? Uh, George had a book that was published by Simon and Schuster in several oh. years ago when they were celebrating a major anniversary mm-hmm. uh, in New York. I went and my publisher took me over to meet George and said, George, this is Brad Thor. And that's what he said. You're the guy that puts all my songs in your books. Yep. And I got a great picture of me and George Clinton together. So yeah. um, I'm not afraid to put things in that people haven't heard of. I, I like the fact, David, that people tell me they love to read my thrillers with their laptops open mm-hmm. because they Google stuff the yep. whole time. They're reading. Oh, he must have made this up. And I don't, but that's, I call what I do faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. And that's part of the fun. 
Right on. So it's not just George Clinton. Uh, you've told the story before about uh, seeing a couple of interesting people when you were out late one night for a late dinner with your agent in New York. I think it was a Greek restaurant, if I remember. And you looked across the room and you saw um, General Hayden and Mandy Patinkin eating yes. dinner. Yes, yes. Um, what what did you do and how does it subvert oh. our expectations about celebrity? <laughs> I went over, so I saw them and we were the last people in the restaurant. We were sitting in the back and so were they a couple of tables away. And, um, and I walked over to the table and I said, cause they were done, they were on coffee and everything was getting buttoned up. So mm -hmm. I wasn't, uh, ruining their dinner. And I said, you know, I, I said, I just wanted to come over and say hello. And I'd like to get a photograph. Uh, and Mandy Patinkin started, you know, like cleaning himself up and, you know, smoothing out his shirt. And he goes, of course, of course. And I said, no, no, no. I'd actually like a picture with the real CIA director because he had played it on Homeland and General Hayden was there. And you should have seen General Hayden's face. It's got to be the first time somebody walked up to him in public where he's there with this big Hollywood celebrity. And somebody said, I don't want the Hollywood guy's photo. I want a photo. And so I handed my camera to or my, uh, my phone to Mandy and asked him to take the photo. And then we got one, the three of us, but it was still fun to, to, to give General Hayden that. Yeah. And to me, that shows that, yes, there, there is a small subset of us who are the national security fans. And to us, you know, celebrity takes on a different meaning. It's, it's somebody that you, you respect and you want to, sure. you want to say, Hey, thank you for, for what you've done. And, you know, can I have a picture or can I chat with you for a minute? Um, when usually it's the Hollywood types or the best selling authors who get people who are trying to, um, get an autograph or trying to be seen with them. Um, it didn't seem like Mandy Patinkin really minded, though, did it? It's, it seems like he's kind of a fan of this stuff, too. He was a good guy about it. And yeah. he knew because we all chuckled when, I, <laughs> when yeah. I said I want it with the real CIA director. So he knew when I said that that I knew who he was, too. Yeah. Uh, and he was very good natured about it. And he took the picture. And then we, like I said, we got one all together. But I, I thought that spoke to his humility as well, that he could laugh at that joke and, and play along with it. So it was a, it was a very, very nice moment. I, I enjoyed meeting General Hayden and Mandy Patinkin, but especially General Hayden. Let me ask you a, a little bit about your writing process, um, because talking to different writers of different kinds of books you know, we, we all have different methods. You know, some people write out explicit outlines and stick to it almost religiously with minor changes along the way only as necessary. Uh, other people are more seat of the pants. You just write it, see how characters develop, and you're surprised about your characters, which gives it realism for, for the reader. But there can be real challenges with both approaches. And I've heard you say before that sometimes you'll 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 be walking in at the end of a day and Trish will see the look on your face um, and she'll say, is this a red wine night or a bourbon night? What is, <laughs> what does she mean by that? And what does it reveal about your writing process? So I'm a pantser. I am not an outliner. And, uh, <laughs> I always quote Robert Frost who said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no joy in the writer, no joy in the reader. Uh, it's really hard to be a pantser, David. It's really, really, really hard because you have to come in every day, not knowing what's going to happen. It's, it's stressful. And my agent knew it was stressful. And, uh, she also represents Dan Brown and I'm friendly with Dan. And, uh, she said, ask Dan if he'll share the Da Vinci code outline with you. 
and and Dan did. And uh, and I was like, wow, I got to see stuff that didn't make it into the final book and all this kind of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And I then tried to outline a novel. I did, but it took all the surprise, all the joy out of me. I want to have the experience writing it that you do reading it. Mm-hmm. I want to know that I've got a character with a briefcase full of bearer bonds and he's got two bullets in him and he's got to get to the train station on the other side of Zurich within mm-hmm. the next 17 minutes or it's all going to explode. Um, so that makes my job hard and I will paint my characters into corners mm-hmm. day after day after day. And so when I come home, that's when Trish can tell. Is it a red wine night or a bourbon night? And yeah. she always tells me, listen, it seems bad now. You don't know how you're going to figure it out but you always do. You'll mm-hmm. figure it out tomorrow when you go into the office. Um, and that's really a, a product of how my parents raised me, the Marine and the TWA flight attendant is yeah. they said, you know, you treat every day at work as if it's your first day on the job mm-hmm. and you give it your all knowing that if you don't, it could be your last day on the job. A- at the end of the day, my employer is not Simon & Schuster. It's the readers. It's the people who buy my books that keep me in business. So I'm constantly raising the bar. Like this whole thing with India, with Rising Tiger this year, it's the hardest book I've ever written because I didn't know anything about India. Yeah. And trying to take everything that was going on with China and the whole string of pearls strategy in the Indian Ocean and tying that in with the Belt and Road Initiative, Mm -hmm. but making it, Elmore Leonard told a group of young writers once, best piece of advice I could give to you is number one, don't start with the weather. It was a dark and stormy night. And number two, leave out the parts that people skip. There's a lot of Clancy I used to skip. My dad claimed that Clancy must've been getting paid by the word, you know? So I don't need to know how the guidance system on a missile works. I just need to know there's two guys that are lazing a target and the missile is going to hit the building. So the challenge for me is make everything entertaining, make the chapters such that people want to keep flipping them, Mm -hmm. leave out the parts that people skip. Uh, And at the end of the day, the best thing you can do for an author you like is tell other people, I just read this book. I really like this book. You've got to, I have more people who have written to me to say, I gave your book to my mom or I gave it to my dad or my niece, my nephew, my son, my daughter, and you have reignited their love of reading. They were not readers. They hadn't read since they were kids and they love your books. So that's my number one goal is I've got to take all this really information that's interesting to me and make it engaging, action-packed and fun for the reader and emphasis on fun. I'm in the entertainment business. If you, you get a white knuckle thrill ride and if you're smarter at the end of the book, that's the icing on the cake for me. So when you're in the middle of a scene, you you know it's a scene, right? You know it's not just going to be a passage, but you know this is where something's going to happen. He's going to have the first confrontation with one of the antagonists, or he's going to be pursuing something and then and then bump into the secondary character. So you have some sense of what's going to happen, but do you have a sense of whether this is going to be one of those things where the heroes go through it, they, they have a success, maybe some stumbles along the way, but they, they have success and then they move on to the next. Or is this one of the many times where they have their plan, they go through, and then it completely goes off the rails. I think you phrased it in, in rising tiger, the best I've ever seen, which is you have a character think through something and say, operations sometimes went sideways, but this one had gone sideways backed up, run over itself, and then had gone sideways all over again. <laughs> that's a that's a very different challenge to writing is when you're when you're starting a scene, deciding is this going to be one 
where I have to take things in a completely different direction because I'm just feeling that it's necessary for the flow of the book? Or is this one where I need something specific to happen and I can't let it go completely sideways? So one of the things when you talk particularly to operators, they they like to talk about Murphy's Law, right? It's uh, all plans, even the best laid plans survive until first contact, right? Or as Mike Tyson so yeah. well said it, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Right on. So, you know, I, I think it makes it real. I think we can all relate to stuff not going the way we planned it. And so whether that's somebody that that comes out of an agency background like you or whether it's a, a citizen who has not been in the Intel community, you can relate to problems with your boss, problems at work, uh, a timeline being shortened. You know, that report was supposed to be in by Friday. Now we need it Wednesday by lunch. You're going to have to stay late and get that done sort of a thing. So things go awry every day in life. And if if it's too perfect, it's not believable. So that's the that's the, the challenge for me is how do I keep the books engaging and believable? I'm writing a franchise character and I always tell people it's like the James Bond movies. You don't have to have ever seen a James Bond movie before to go to the theaters and see the most recent one. And I tell people that's the way it is with my books. If you want to start at the beginning with Lines of Lucerne, fabulous. If you want to start with this summer's book, Rising Tiger, you can do that too. You're not going to feel like you've missed anything. Yeah. So uh, a lot of it is how do I make it relatable? How do I make it interesting? Because every time you can find a connection point with the book, it becomes more real to you. You become more invested in the story. So that's what I'm looking to do with that stuff. And I've just bought enough steak dinners and pictures of beers and have listened to people's stories. I mean, guys that have had somebody on their team that had a medical condition that didn't get disclosed or should have been disclosed and is now putting the operation at risk now that they're downrange, you know? I mean, this stuff happens. It's These are stories about human beings. So it opens up lots of potential for conflict and mistakes. Even yeah. the best, smartest people make mistakes or circumstances on the ground change and you have to change with them and maybe you don't make the right choice. Another challenging part related to that is, is where to throw the curves. So you've got curves inside the book, left and right, sometimes in the first chapter, uh, sometimes uh, up to and near the end. More often than not, we end with something like, you know, the big adventure ending and then Scott and Solvi sitting and, you know, having a glass of wine and laughing. And that's a great ending. People tend mm-hmm. to like that. Uh, some writers really struggle with that ending, like exactly where to leave a book after there's been so much adrenaline and so much action. And I got to say, I, I was reading your most recent book, Rising Tiger, and I flipped over from page 319 to 320. And my eyes can see that it's mostly blank, right? That there's only a couple of short paragraphs left. And my, my wife will tell you, I, I suddenly froze and said, oh God, because I literally got chills down my spine because I remembered what you did to me at the end of Spy Master when <laughs> I had the feel, oh my God, they've, they've gotten through this. What an adventure. This is crazy. Oh, we're going to have a glass of wine and look off in the sunset. And then all of a sudden, literally in the last two sentences, I think, you rocked your reader's world. And we had to wait a year to find out. That pissed Um, a lot of people off with that. Not every book do you do that kind of cliffhanger type thing where there's suddenly a complete subversion of expectations in the last two sentences. And I won't say whether it happens in Rising Tiger or not, but but Spy Master, still one of my favorite uh, books of yours, does end that way. And I found that even now, each book since, I get that sense when I turn the last page, like Brad, 
you are not going to do this to my fragile psyche again, are you? <laughs> How do you decide what to do? Does it depend on your idea for the next book? Because clearly with Spymaster, you knew where you were going next. Um, did you decide that as you wrote the book or is that something you tweak at the very end as you've developed the concept for next year's thriller? So I ended Spymaster originally a couple paragraphs before what you're talking about, that cliffhanger. And oh. my editor said, I just feel like we need something more here. You got to go back. And I want to shift the blame, aren't you? Uh, well, <laughs> it's, I get, I get my licks for this too. And I went home and my wife goes, Oh, it looks like a bourbon night. And I'm like, yeah, it is a bourbon night. And I sat down, I had a couple bourbons and I came up with something, did it. And my editor loved that ending. The publisher hated it. Mm -hmm. She, Carolyn Reedy, God rest her soul, was not a fan of cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. She did not like them. I heard from a lot of angry readers mm -hmm. who wanted a tidy, clean it up at the end sort of a thing yeah. and not wait till yet next year to figure out what happened. So I have a lot of people that are kind of once bitten, twice shy, like you, where they wonder when they get to that end, is he going to do it to me again? It is a shock that does not uh, kind of fade in your in your memory. But it works. I mean, it it honestly, it had me trying to figure out, okay, you know, where, how, I know it's going to go bad, right? I know things have just gone sideways, turned around, run over again, gone sideways. Right. I, I know that from two sentences, but where's he going to go with it? it? It does raise the stakes for the start of the next book. Now, again, not every book can do that. I mean, I guess it could, you could get into a formula of doing that, but that actually puts a higher burden on you. And in some ways, a higher burden on the readers to, to do that every time. It does. It does. So you have to, and I think you have to be, because there are some readers and it's not an ins insignificant amount of readers who don't like that. You have to be really, really careful because that is a device and you can play with it. And what you get is, is if you do that too often, people are like, oh, it's just a ploy to get people to buy the next book. Well, you know, you want people to buy the next book, but you should right. be able to do it on the strength of your storytelling and your writing and, and that right. kind of stuff. Uh, one interesting curve that I got thrown uh, at, so the book that followed Spymaster was Backlash, yeah. uh, where it answered that cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And I finished Backlash and I turned it in and my publisher came to me and said, and this was a really interesting dilemma that I got tossed into as a writer, hmm. uh, a national bookstore chain wants to do a special edition and they'd like you to provide an additional chapter. Yeah. And I had another, it's not red wine, it's bourbon night. I'm like, well, the story's got every chapter it needs. It doesn't need another chapter. Mm -hmm. And I decided that because of something Harvard did at the end of backlash to kind of tie up all his loose ends, that mm -hmm. somebody was going to put out the biggest uh, contract in the history of contract killing on him. So I wrote this chapter. It got uh, issued in a special edition and a, I felt kind of guilty as an author because I didn't like telling everybody buy this new car, but if you want it with air conditioning, buy it from this dealership. That's right. Yeah. Well, and the other thing was David that like the Marvel films that my children love where they sit through the credits because there's an additional scene mm -hmm. halfway through the credits that becomes part of the Marvel universe. So even though there were only a certain amount of books out in the wild that had that bonus chapter, yeah. it was still part of the universe. Right. And so I used that bonus chapter as the opening chapter in Near Dark. I told mm. the publisher, I said, I don't know what kind of rights you negotiated for that special edition, mm -hmm. but it's out there and I have to answer that. 
and I have to show people what happened in that chapter. So they were able to work something out, and that's what I opened Near Dark with. But that was a that that's was another great. kind of interesting thing in the in the world of the author that uh, put some unique pressure on me as far as how to write the next book. Are you at the point where you're tiring in some ways of Scott Harvath? That is, you've you've put him through just about everything a human being can through, both on the positive and the negative sides of life. You've taken him literally around the world in almost every direction. I guess we haven't had Moonraker yet, right? Or we haven't <laughs> had the Mariana Trench, but you've had you've had just about everything one can do on the land surface and in some cases uh, the waters of the earth. Um, just like you did with the Athena project. Are, do you have an itch to scratch to to go in other places? Or do you scratch that itch simply by taking Scott Harvath to new places? It is taking Scott Harvath to new places because just the way I'm sure Bond was Fleming's alter ego and Jack Ryan was for Clancy, Harvath is for me. I mean, I, you know, I joke that Harvath gets to do the things that my wife won't let me do. Right. And if I ever say that in her presence, she says, I let you go to Afghanistan in 2008. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So the, the bigger challenge for me, I love Harvath and I also love revealing new things about his character. That's probably one of the biggest challenges of being a franchise author, of having the same protagonist come back, is what's something new about their personality or their history that you can reveal. And so for me, I'm learning more about him with each book. But the, the big challenge is the world is such a crazy place, particularly right now, where I don't know what's happening. Uh, and retailers now want the next book or the concept for the next book. Uh, my wife is traveling as you and I are recording this uh, because uh, my youngest is doing uh, college classes this summer. And so mm -hmm. they went to drive to this university. And so I plopped down my 20 bucks to get all the episodes of The Old Man with Jeff Bridges on uh, oh, FX yeah. and Hulu. And I've been burning through those. And I thought I had like the thread of an idea last night as I was mm -hmm. sitting there having my shooters and watching that. And I took a ton of notes because okay. I always I, I always grab as many notepads from hotel rooms as I can. And I have yeah. them in the bathroom, the mm -hmm. dining room. I mean, they're everywhere yeah. with a pen because- Once you lose an idea, it's gone. You got to oh, jot yeah. it down. Yeah. So I, so I've got something I was thinking might be interesting that I might have to do a little bit of a pivot off of a big geopolitical set piece and actually focus on a geo, geopolitical set piece that's ongoing right now, but the fallout from that, that eventually will happen. Ooh. And if people who have read Rising Tiger already have been, they really liked seeing the troll in this yeah. and the troll getting a little action. Such, and, a, such a fun character and taking him in that direction. Uh, we won't spoil it for anybody, but a very memorable, very unique character who could easily become cartoonish, doesn't. He's actually showing a lot more depth, especially in Rising Tiger, and it's it's worth the read for that. Well, thank you. And what's funny is, is I don't know if you've seen any episodes of The Old Man. I mean, it's- Not it's, yet, but I'm, okay. I'm eagerly anticipating getting through it because it it looks really well-crafted. It is it is very well done, and I was blown away that Jeff Bridges was working through his cancer as he was filming this, which was amazing. Um, so, but it's it's a neat storyline, and like the troll, Jeff Bridges has two dogs. He's got two Rottweilers, where uh, oh. the troll has his very special mm -hmm. uh, dogs from uh, the Caucasus. So uh, there's a lot to like about the troll. So I mean, I'm thinking about maybe having a very personal thing happen for him in the new book that he needs Harvath's help with. So still set against the backdrop of a little bit of geopolitics 
politics, but maybe making this a little bit more personal. And that just came to me last night. So I can't wait to do uh, do this with you next year. So we can say, remember you were kind of fishing around for a, for a story and you didn't know where you were going to go. And now let's talk about what you wrote. I am so curious where that where that will go. Well, Brad, as you know, we end our conversations on Chatter by reaching into our Chatter box, which has pre-printed questions. We don't know what's going to happen as I shake it up, but let me reach in here and see what it has in store for you. Brad, if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. You've got nothing but runway in front of you. If you're going to flip any switches the wrong way, Better to do it at the beginning of the runway than later on. But I think that's probably, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid of what other people think of you. You get one shot at this life and uh, he who dares wins. What uh, What is the best mistake you've made? Ooh, boy, that's a great... Great question. Um, Most of us make lots of mistakes, but few of us have, and I'll put myself here, uh, few of us except rarely have the courage to look at them enough to say, uh, how was that mistake something that actually really helped me? It put me on a different path or I was able to learn from it and make better choices in the future. I think it's what we talked about in the beginning of the interview where I gave up on writing my first manuscript Mm. and I didn't start writing again for... I don't know, nine years, maybe eight, nine years. So that was a mistake, but it did put me, uh, I went and did something else. It was a good mistake because I think that uh, the fact that I had given up on writing a novel, went and created a public television series, which was incredible, incredible avoidance behavior. I was running away from writing, yet I was writing. I was the writer, producer, and host of the show. But doing that show once I came back to writing again, having that show currently airing coast to coast helped me get my deal with Simon & Schuster. My yeah. agent was able to say to the editor who she was yeah. selling the manuscript to, look, let me send over some VHS tapes of this guy. Look at how personable he is. You guys can promote the heck out of him. He'll be great on TV. Just take a look at these and you'll know what you're getting. You, you've read the manuscript. You know what it's like as a writer, but now see him in kind of his PR mode or whatever you want to call it. So that that actually was a mistake that if you want to call it that, that helped me. And I, it's funny, recently cleaning up my office, because if you, if you put somebody <laughs> under deadline, they have the cleanest garage, cleanest closet, cleanest yeah. office. I actually found the first three chapters of that book that I had moved to Paris to write. Oh, I had thought they were gone forever. I actually found them. So I think at some point mm. it would be really cool to finish writing that book. Yeah. Or find a way that it really uh, helps out with another project would be yeah. nice too. Yeah. Well, Brad, it has been a pleasure. I'm going to encourage everybody to look at uh, Rising Tiger because not only is it escapist, it's just fun fiction, but for anybody interested in national security and international affairs, you find yourself thinking about, oh, wait a minute, you know, is this is this what connects this uh, issue that's happening in the world and this greater geopolitical trend? So it's like a nice combination hitting both sides of the brain. And I'm, I'm glad you wrote it. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun to write. And uh, this was a lot of fun just to talk about it and talk about all things political and IC and all that kind of stuff. This was a a great interview. Thank you, David. Appreciate your time. Thanks. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.